Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Yeah, I'm so glad that you've joined us this morning. We are in week number two in our series in the book of Nehemiah. And the, ne- the book of Nehemiah is a pretty old historical book, more than 2,000 years old. But I think it's packed full of some really great stuff for all of us here this morning. Now, a couple of months ago, I was on a wilderness trip with my future father-in-law. So I didn't know if I was going to come back from this trip, but it was a good time. He leads these wilderness ministries where they do like leadership training on the front end and spiritual development all throughout the whole thing and combine that with some kind of wilderness experience. So I was on the Appalachian Trail with him. And in part of that leadership training, I was just working through a question that I asked myself at the beginning of the week just processing this one question all week long. And the question that I ask myself is, what does it look like to have a thriving relationship with God? Have you ever felt like your relationship with God just grows kind of stale? Like maybe you're not doubting if God is real. You're not going off the deep end or anything like that. But maybe you compare where you are now to your walk with God a few years ago. And you just feel like you had more of an emotional connection to God back then. Or you're evaluating your motives and serving in the church. And you're asking yourself, am I just doing this because it's because of what I do? Like that's the thing to be done? Or is this just overflowing from my passion and my love for God? And I'm super stoked about this morning's message Because we'll be looking to God's word and answering, at least in some part, this question. I'm sure there's answers to this question that we won't even touch on. But if you'd like to follow along with me, you can turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 9. Last week we were in Nehemiah chapter 8. And just to give you a very brief recap. So the nation of Israel... They're in a pretty rough place. Like, they've just been going through the motion of following just whatever it is that they want to do. And so they really don't have any place in their life for God. And their city was a wreck. Their lives were a wreck. And in steps this guy named Nehemiah. And he helps them rebuild the walls to their city. He moves the people into the city. And he even becomes the governor of Jerusalem. And Nehemiah uses his platform of influence as a leader to point these people back to God. And so he recruits this preacher of the law, a priest named Ezra. And so Ezra brings out the first five books of the Bible, and they get all the people together in a big crowd. And Ezra just starts in the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he starts reading through the first five books of the Bible. And they got a whole team of guys who are explaining it to all the people. And they do this from morning all the way till the afternoon. And then they do it again the second day. And on the second day, the people were really hit to the heart. And they realized the way that they were living before did not at all match up with the way that God had called them to live. And so this was a turning point for the people of Israel And so they started putting what they heard from Scripture into action in their lives. And they began reading the Word of God every day for a month straight. And they spent 
hours a day reading the Word of God. And so that's what we're going to check out here in chapter 9, picking up in verse 1. It says, On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth, and putting dust on their heads. Those of the Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. They, they stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day and spent another quarter in confession and in worshiping the Lord their God. So they spent an entire month reading God's word. Like this is the tail end of that month. And this is back in a day when they didn't have version Bible app, so they didn't connect their phone to Bluetooth and hit a play button and listen to the Bible. And they also didn't have Netflix competing with their entertainment. And so it must have been a pretty sweet deal for them to all come together and listen to somebody else read God's word to them. And it didn't just go in one ear and out the other. It connected with their heart, and they even put it into action. And so this is kind of a picture of what went on here, where they read God's word, and then from that, it led them to confess their personal sins and the sins of their ancestors. It led them to worship God, and they expressed their confession and their worship to God in prayer. And what we'll be looking at this morning is the longest recorded prayer in the Bible. And as we get into it, you might be thinking, this prayer doesn't really sound like the way that I pray. And if that's the case, it's probably because most of this prayer is remembering history. They are looking back at what God had brought them through. And so they are very focused on what God has done. And there's it's not as much about asking God for things. Now, I don't think that there's some perfect formula for how much time you spend looking back on what God has done versus asking God for things. I think those are both important elements, and there's no necessarily right or wrong way to do that. But for us to grow in a thriving relationship with God, I think that the example that they set here in, verse, in chapter 9 of looking back, praying backwards, is so important for us. And so let's go ahead and get into the tail end of verse 5 here. It says, Blessed be your glorious name, and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry hosts, like the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. So they start out by worshiping God for his work of creation. And oftentimes when I approach the topic of creation, I can think of it pretty academically or scientifically, as if it's all about how many days God created the world and how long ago it was that God created everything. But maybe we need to just step back and be in awe and wonder of God's work of creation. Like even if God did nothing else, 
If he just created the stars and the heavens and the sea and its depths with all the sea creatures and the woods for the animals and human life and our ability to build houses and work jobs, if that's all that God has done, that is enough of a reason to praise him. And even if we don't give God our praise, even if we didn't meet on Sunday mornings or even pray to God throughout the week, even the rest of creation would give God the praise that he deserves. We see this in Psalm 148, and I'll read just the first few verses here. It says, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights above. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his heavenly hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens and you waters above the skies. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for at his command they were created, and he established them forever and ever. He has issued a decree that will never pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures in all ocean depths. This is a call for us to praise God, for all the angels in heaven to praise God, for the stars and even the creatures who live in the sea to praise God. And maybe we think of this as just poetry, telling the stars to praise God. But even if you did a Google search, you would find that stars are able to make a sound naturally in their interiors, and that sound gets trapped just like the sound in a musical instrument. Stars actually do make noise. And I don't have time to get into the whole sermon and to show you everything, but there's this pastor named Louis Giglio, and a few years back, he did this message where he took clips of different stars, and he played a recording of the noise that those stars made. And then he took a clip of whales and combined that clip of the whales with the stars. Let me just show it to you. Let's go ahead and check out this on the screen. And so we're going to put the, uh, the millisecond guys in there, the ones you just heard. Here they come.
That's so awesome, right? How many of you wanted to sing along with the stars and the whales? Me too, and then I remembered I had the microphone on, so I'm like, I'm not going to do that. Uh, But I think there's something about just stepping back and just being in awe and wonder of how awesome God is. I mean, most of us have probably heard the Sunday school stories about creation. We could list off all the facts, but how often do we just get into this rut of being in a stale relationship with God because we don't truly see God for how great and how awesome he is. Like we just, we lose some of our appreciation for him sometimes. It's kind of like if I had Mount Rushmore in my backyard. Never been there before, but I hear it's a pretty cool sight. And I I bet you at first... It'd be so excited. I'd look out my backyard and be like, wow, that's so awesome. And then fast forward a few years down the road, it's like, yeah, it just might as well be another tree or like some other feature of the backyard. But my perspective of it doesn't take away from how spectacular and how amazing it is. Like if there's anything flawed, it's my perspective. Like I need to step back and see it with a fresh set of eyes. How many of us need that in our relationship with God? You might know all the facts about God. Maybe you've been a Christian for a long time, but you just need to see God with a fresh perspective. I mean, this is why I think that a lot of new Christians are oftentimes more passionate about their relationship with God than people who've been Christians for most of their lives. The way it should be is we become a follower of Jesus and then we just continue to grow in our love and devotion for God and that just grows and grows and grows the longer that we, become, that we are a Christian. But so often the opposite is true. It's like the longer we're a Christian and the more distance between that turning point in our lives, the less and less we appreciate what God has done for us versus somebody who's recently become a Christian, and they just remember all too well their life before Jesus, and then the life that they now have in Jesus. What if we woke up every morning just asking ourselves, like, how can we see God's awesomeness today? What if we went through our days just trying to identify how awesome God is in the way that we look at creation, And watching the sunset or looking at the animals or just looking up at the sky. What if we see how awesome God is in our relationships and the conversations that we have with people or the community that we have or see God's awesomeness in the way that he provides for all of our needs. And we just take all of that and we point it back to God with the praise that we give him. And so that's one way that we can pray backwards. And if praying and praising God is remembering who he is and what he has done, another aspect of praying backwards is confession. And that's acknowledging what it is that we have done. And we read in verse 2 here that the people confessed their sins, but not only their sins, but the sins of their ancestors. And this might sound a lot like finger pointing, but they're really not just pointing out the sin of their ancestors and thinking that they're some kind of holy roller or something like that. But what they're doing is they're recognizing that the sin of their ancestors 
It was not right. And that they don't want to follow in their footsteps away from God. And so they didn't want to repeat history. Winston Churchill says that those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. So let's go ahead and look at some of the history of Israel recorded in chapter 9 right here in this prayer. Let's go ahead and look at verse 16 here. They said, But they, our ancestors, became arrogant and stiff-necked, and they did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore you did not desert them, even when they cast for themselves an image of a calf and said, This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt, or when they committed awful blasphemies. Sometimes I wonder if we don't like to confess our sin to God because we don't have an accurate view of his character. Maybe we think that if God knew the sin and the dirt in our lives that he wouldn't want to have anything to do with us. Now, Some of you, I've been using my um, dog as a sermon illustration, and so you know all about my dog. For those of you who are new, I am getting married in just a few weeks, but my fiance is kind of a package deal, and she comes with this little yippy dog. And I've been, I've been working with this dog. Uh, at first, when he moved to this area, uh, he was going through a rough adjustment, and he was peeing all over the house. I mean, this dog lived with me for a few months while she lived somewhere else, and it was just me and this dog, and he's like peeing on the carpet almost every day. And so anyways... Here we are, a few months later, and things are a lot better. There's only a few incidents every now and again. I don't call them accidents because he knows better. But when I'm walking through the house and I see a mess on the carpet, I'll go get the dog, I'll bring him over. I don't rub his face in it or give him a super hard spanking. Gabby doesn't like that, and I guess it doesn't work for dog training. But I'll get down on his level point to the spot on the floor, and I'll use my most intimidating dog voice. I'll be like, you do not pee on the carpet. That is bad. Do not do that. No go potty in the house. And then I stare him down. I just glare into his soul to the point where he has to look away because he can't keep eye contact with me. And then, I know I really did a good job when he has to slink away and hide underneath a chair. I was like, yes. He, know who, he knows who the boss of this house is. Like, we are not buddies when he is making a mess on the floor. And I want him to, to feel like there is distance in the relationship. And I am not at all a good example of God. I am quick to anger, especially with the dog, and... My love for him is very conditional on his obedience. <laughs> but some of us, we kind of look at God like, oh man, if we really blow it, if we sin against God, 
Is he just going to like stare us down or want to have distance in our relationship and not want to draw near to us? But let's, let's take a look at God's character. This isn't just what God does, but this is who he is. It says here, you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. That is who God is. And sometimes we can sin against him and it, it's our sin that puts distance between us and our relationship with God. But our confession of our sin is a step closer towards God. And the Bible says that when we confess our sin, that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so when we blow it, that God doesn't just stare us down, but he's ready to receive us with open arms. And we see example after example of this in chapter 9. Like, I wish I could go back and just count all the times that this passage refers to the compassion of God. But we see it again in verse 26. It says, But they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They turned their backs on your law. They killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. They committed awful blasphemies. So you delivered them into the hands of their enemies who oppressed them. But when they were oppressed, they cried out to you. From heaven you heard them, and in your great compassion you gave them deliverers who rescued them from the hand of their enemies. But as soon as they were at rest, they again did what was evil in your sight. Then you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they ruled over them. And when they cried out to you again, you heard from heaven, and in your compassion you delivered them time after time. I think my favorite part of these verses here is when it says that God delivered them time after time. And you ever just feel tired of confessing the same sin to God? In the back of your mind, you're probably wondering, like, when does God get tired of this? Is this something like three strikes and then you're out? Is God's forgiveness going to run out on me? And what this is saying is that God's always there to forgive us, that his compassion doesn't run out, of, out on us, even when we sin against him time after time again. Now, this doesn't give us a free pass on sin, and if we keep stumbling over the same sin over and over again, I think maybe we need to ask ourselves, are we truly repentant when we confess our sins to God, or is this something that is kind of like, ask for forgiveness later and you're just leaving the door open to repeat that over and over again. But I think that confession might not be the most fun part of prayer, but when we do this, it can help us to grow into a more thriving relationship with God because it's our sin that puts distance between us and God. But confession is a step forward in overcoming that distance. And so we can pray backwards when we praise God and remember all that it is that he has done. And we can pray backwards when we acknowledge our sin and confess it to God. And another aspect of prayer 
is to pray forward. And this is when we ask God for things and ask him to intervene in our lives and in our circumstances. And so this is what we see in verse 32 here. It says, Now therefore, our God, the great God, mighty and awesome, who keeps his covenant of love, do not let all this hardship seem trifling in your eyes, the hardship that has come on us, on our kings and leaders, on our priests and prophets, on our ancestors, and all your people from the days of the king of Assyria until today. In all that has happened to us, you have remained righteous. You have acted faithfully while we acted wickedly. Our kings, our leaders, our priests, and our ancestors did not follow your law. They did not pay attention to your commands or the statutes you warned them to keep. And so these guys are calling out to God for help, for this hardship that has been going on for more than 400 years, starting with the Assyrian exile. So if you go back in Israel's history, the nation was actually split into two sections. So you have the northern kingdom, which is 10 tribes of Israel, and then the southern kingdom, it's the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, and that's where Jerusalem is. That's the, the region that we're talking about here in this passage in Nehemiah. But if you look back at history, the northern kingdom was the first kingdom to just get annihilated and defeated by the Assyrians and then shipped away into exile by the Assyrians. And this whole exile was really a result of the people's sin. God told them, if you follow my commandments and worship me, then you will have a blessed life living in the land of Israel. But if you reject me, then you'll be carried away to a foreign nation. Well, the people of Israel, they rejected God and broke this deal that they had with God. And so the Assyrians came in, took them into captivity, and never let them go. They were never released to go back to their homeland. And so these tribes of Israel have also been referred to as the lost tribes. And then we've got in the south here, Judah, and they were in the same boat. They watched what happened to the northern kingdom, and they still rebelled against God, broke all the commandments. And so the Babylonians came in and defeated them and carried them away into exile. And then... Down the road, the Persians came in and defeated the Babylonians. And after 70 years of exile, King Cyrus of Persia gave the decree that the people could go back to their homeland. And so a lot of the people went back. But even still, they still had to pay taxes to the Persian government. And so this is the hardship that the people are referring to. And so they are calling out to God Asking that God would help them to live in a way that is right and that follows the covenant that God has with them because they don't want to follow in the footsteps of their ancestors and end up in the same boat. And God works through prayer. And prayer is, is a cry of humility to God. When we pray to God, we're recognizing that he is the one who is in control, that he is greater and stronger than than our circumstances, than our own abilities. And when we pray, it sounds so crazy, but it moves the hand of God, that God actually responds to prayer. It makes me wonder sometimes what we would be missing out on 
in all the times that we simply don't pray. I mean, I know it doesn't work like this, but just picture with me a man who dies and goes to heaven, and he's being given a tour of heaven, and they come across this warehouse, and this warehouse is full of all of these great big boxes that are unopened. And so the man asks his tour guide, hey, what are these boxes? What is this all about? And his tour guide tells him, those are the answers to all the prayers that you never prayed. And I, it just makes me wonder, like, what could we be seeing God do in our lives, in our family, in our communities, even in our nation, if we would just turn to him and pray? And something that I'm working on in my personal life is just praying throughout my day, praying when I wake up, when I sit down to work on a sermon or have a difficult conversation to remember that I need God's strength throughout my day and also to have that constant communication with God because we know any great relationship, it needs lots and lots of communication. And my challenge for you is to think about like what is one time period in your day that you're not praying that you could just focus on talking to God. Maybe that's while you're driving to work. Maybe it's before you eat your lunch or something like that, cleaning up around the house. And we could all take a step towards growing in a more thriving relationship with God just to get to that point of talking to God like we're talking to a friend. Uh, one more way that we could put some of this into action is the day of prayer that is next, this upcoming Sunday. And this is the opportunity that we have as a church to meet together within the times of 6 a.m. and 12 p.m. to just pray to God. We're opening up our downstairs room here where you can come and pray with other people in the church that God would show up in our community, in our church, in our nation you don't have to pray for a full six hours. You could just pick half an hour or an hour, anytime between six and 12. And a question that we often get asked is, well, can I just pray at home? And the answer to that question is absolutely. You can pray at home, but you can also pray at home any other day of the week. And this is an opportunity that we have to gather together as a church and to just call out to God and ask him to intervene and to step in. And at this point, uh, we're going to, to turn to communion. Uh, you can go ahead and get out your communion cup. And if, you, if you've just been coming to church, you're checking things out, but you are not a follower of Jesus, and I really want to encourage you to just leave that communion cup right where it is. When we take communion as a church, this is really for us as Christians to look back on what Jesus has done in our lives. And a few verses in Peter, I think, can really help us to remember what it is exactly that Jesus has done for us. I'll have these verses up here on the screen. And let's just kind of take a minute to reflect on what these verses are saying and to just quiet our hearts it says, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from 
the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are now in God. One time in our lives, we were all living in emptiness and brokenness and in sin. And God bought us back from that. And he didn't do that with money, with gold, or maybe some other things that we would look at as valuable. But he paid the greatest price for our freedom. And that is with the very life of Jesus. And what blows me away with this passage is that before the foundations of the world were created, that Jesus was chosen. You could ask, what, what was Jesus chosen for? I believe he was chosen to go to the cross. Before sin had even entered the world, before you had even taken your first breath, Jesus knew what a mess this world would be. He knew what a mess your life would be. But even before all of that, he was ready to go to the cross for you. And that's what he did. And so when we take communion this morning, we're remembering what it is that Jesus has done for us. So you can go ahead and take out this little communion cup and peel back the top layer to get to that wafer. If, if you are, um, have an allergy to gluten and you need a, a gluten-free alternative, we do have those in the back here. You can go ahead and get one. When we, when we take this bread and eat it together, it's a picture of the body of Jesus. He hung up there on the cross and took upon himself the price of our sin. Jesus said, take it, this is my body. Let's take it together. I'll just pray and, and thank God for what it is that he's done for us. Father, we were all lost in our sin and brokenness. You showed us grace. God, the breath that we have in our lungs, even in this moment, is more than we deserve. I thank you for making a way for us to know you and to have a relationship with you, not only in this life, but for all of eternity. And God, help us to always appreciate that grace that you have showed us to remember that we don't deserve it and to remember that it is the greatest gift that we could ever be given. And so I thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now you can go ahead and take out your cup and peel back the next layer to get to the juice. And this juice is just, just a symbol of the blood of Jesus that was poured out on the cross so that we can have forgiveness of our sins. Jesus said to his disciples, Truly, uh, 
this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Let's go ahead and take it together. And when we take communion together as a church, we don't only look back at what God has done, but we also look forward to the hope that we have in Jesus. Jesus said, Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Can you imagine being up in heaven, sitting at a table with Jesus, just being able to take a deep breath and knowing that the sin and the brokenness All the hardships of this life are behind you. That you are in the presence of your Savior, the one who loves you the most. And that you can even love him back in a way that we can never do in this life with all the sin and selfishness in our hearts. And that's the day that we can all look forward to if you are a follower of Jesus. And so let me just close things out this morning which is praying to God and thanking him for the hope that is to come. Father, I thank you that this life is not as good as it gets, that this life isn't even our home, that our home is to be with you in heaven. But so often, God, we live like this is our place where we're always going to be. So God, help us to see that that uh, Jesus has made a way for us to spend all of eternity with you and help us to fix our focus on that future day and to just make the most of this life with the time that we have. And God, I ask that we would be people who are always growing in our relationship with you, that it doesn't get to a point where we become stale in our walk with you. Help us to just love you more and more. Help us to be able to look into our hearts, God. Help us to search our hearts and know it and to see what it is that we can do to grow closer to you. And I thank you for the hope that as we draw near to you, God, you draw near to us. And you've given us so much hope. Thank you that you are a God of forgiveness, of compassion, and of love. I just pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.